for Change podcast. Today, we're speaking with Nicole Schmidt, Executive Director of the Alaska Wildlife Alliance. Alaska Wildlife Alliance was founded in 1978 to be a voice for Alaska's wildlife, which includes marine mammals and endangered species. The mission of AWA is to safeguard wildlife biodiversity, knowing the wildlife have not only intrinsic value to the ecosystems, but to the Alaskan people as well. And in recent years, AWA has expanded its reach and partners with other environmental organizations to litigate over exploiting public lands and waters in Alaska by extraction industries. I am so forward to listening to what you have to bring to us today. Thank you, Nicole, for being here with us. Well, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate it. I appreciate um the time that you are giving to us right now and everything you're going to um, shed light on for us about Alaska and its wildlife and all of the nature that's in that beautiful area. Um, but first, I would like to start off with, um, can you share with us how you got your start with Alaska Wildlife Alliance and what you, what does your job entail? Yeah, well, um, I first learned about Alaska Wildlife Alliance in 2013. I was working in a seasonal capacity at the Kenai National Wildlife Refuge doing a GIS project, mapping project, mm. um, about wildlife and um, the interactions between private lands and public lands and how wildlife moved across those. Um, and at the time, the refuge managers decided to close brown bear hunting on the refuge because there had basically been uh, an over-harvest of brown bears, to use that regulatory language, in the area. And these bears are are pretty segregated from other bear populations. There are big mountains that act as a natural barrier, and so there's not a lot of cross-pollination between these, these brown bears. They're distinct. Um, and the refuge had a meeting uh, where it explained the closure. And at the closure, there were a lot of people very upset who wanted to continue hunting brown bears and wanted to hunt brown bears on the refuge lands. And I attended just to listen and learn more about it. And there were only a couple of voices in the room that spoke up in support of the closure and in support of brown bears. And one of those was the executive director at the time of Alaska Wildlife Alliance. And I was so intrigued by the organization because in these regulatory spaces, there are many people who are seeking what we would call allocation of wildlife for their interests, like mm. sport hunt or trophy hunt, or they just don't like brown bears and they don't walk them around. Um, those are often the voices in that room. And it was really refreshing and, and um, made me feel better about the process, having an organization like Alaska Wildlife Alliance in that space advocating for wildlife. And so that was my introduction to the organization. And um, I came on as the executive director in 2018. And my role is, uh, for those who work in nonprofits, you know, everyone wears multiple hats, but um, I oversee our programs and our fundraising. Um, and I, I've come on a bit of a journey about what, um, what this role is and what this looks like, what effective wildlife advocacy looks like. And one of my mentors said, Nikki, 
wildlife management and wildlife advocacy isn't really about wildlife. It's about people management and, <laughs> and advocating to people. And I didn't believe that for so long. And I'm really coming around to that, but we're such a powerful species. We, our impact can be so great. And so I've really adjusted my thinking about this role and this work as to how we can build relationships with people and restore relationships between people and their environment and their wildlife neighbors. And so uh, I, I spend a lot of time doing that. I, I used to think that these regulations and decisions were made on best available science, be it Western science or traditional ecological knowledge, but it's really, it's really made by people with different values and agendas. And so um, we spend a lot of time working with people. Wow. So when you say working with people, you're working with um, legislation, you're working with indigenous peoples, you're working with um, people who want to allocate bears um, and other wildlife and trying to um, be on the same footing, I guess, with everyone. Yeah, it's it's tricky. <laughs> so we're we're a five hundred one c three organization. So we don't um, lobby. Uh, we can't we can't you know lobby in the halls of the legislature. But we do a lot of education for people, um, community members about what the impacts of their votes are, how the political systems touch wildlife management. Um, uh, and then, yeah, working with partners, some of them seem very natural and others seem kind of surprising. Um, so we've we've worked with hunting organizations on issues where we see overlap in, for example, wanting more uh, wildlife troopers or wanting to reduce poaching. Um, and so there's been overlap, overlap there. Um, we've also been working really hard to um, improve and expand our relationships with Native communities um, around uh, subsistence issues and and also just this notion of holistic management. Uh, our mission is really at the core of it. It sounds a bit jargony, but it's ecosystem-based management. And I say management kind of with air quotes, but approaching how we interact with wildlife on an ecosystem with an ecosystem view. So not managing for a single species, for a single user, for a single outcome, but saying, how can we improve this ecosystem as a whole and, and all the people who are interested in, in taking part of that ecosystem, we, we find ourselves building partnerships and alliances um, to, to help make that process more holistic. So can you give an example of what that would look like yeah, gosh. Um, I think I I might give an example. Well, let me give some context, I guess, about how how some of these regulations come into practice. So, for the state of Alaska, we have this entity called the Board of Game, and um, Alaska's state constitution has a clause that says that wildlife and other resources are managed in sustained yield. So that's kind of the standard that our constitution set. And to meet that requirement of sustained yield, they created what's called the Board of Game. And there's also the Board of Fish. And it's 
mindful to note that it's called the Board of Game and not the Board of Wildlife. <laughs> I, yeah, I was just going <laughs> to add yes. that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's, you know, reflects the priority that the creators of that system had for game. And game is more about human interest in consuming a wildlife or a fur bear. Um, and so most hunters, uh, you know, myself included, I have a hunting license. Um, I, I used to think that oh, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, being the scientific entity of the state, made decisions around what the population objectives would be. So how many wolves in a certain area would they deem to be enough wolves to be sustainable? Or how many caribou or how many moose? Um, I thought that they made the decisions on how long hunting and trapping seasons would be so you could you know, stay within those parameters. Or what methods of hunting and trapping would be um, most humane or uh, have the least impact on, on the population. But in reality, all of those decisions, population objectives, season lengths, methods and means, who can hunt, they're made by this board called the Board of Game. And the Board of Game is a politically appointed board. There are no designated seats for scientists or Alaska Natives. They are nominated by the governor and confirmed by the legislature. It's a seven-member board, and they serve three-year terms. So if you look at the composition of the Board of Game right now, it very much reflects the interests of our current governor. Six of the seven members are big game guides, wildlife hunting guides. There's one Alaska Native, and there are no scientists on the board. And so that is the entity who is making all the decisions for how many wolves should exist? How many Alexander Archipelago wolves should we shoot to have um, in Southeast Alaska? It's the only place in Alaska where there's, those wolves live. How many caribou do you think we should have in X herd? Um, what should the season length be for brown bears on the Kenai Peninsula and who gets to hunt them? All those decisions are made by those political appointees. And so the board is advised by Alaska Department of Fish and Game. They're also advised by local advisory committees, um, who are people who are just interested in wildlife regulations. Um, but I, when, when the board puts forward a call for, for proposals, anyone in Alaska can write a proposal for wildlife management. I can say, I want to extend the season for beaver trapping. I can write that in a proposal and it, it's submitted and taken up by the Board of Game. Um, when that happens and we see those proposals, that's when we, we take a look at what people are wanting and we try and mobilize the public to support proposals that are really good for wildlife, oppose proposals that are really bad for wildlife, work with other organizations to see if we can uh, find strength in coming together in support or opposition of a proposal. If we can write proposals together that are, you know, helping us reach an end for wildlife. So um, I, you know, one, I, I have a couple of examples of board of game processes that I think could sort of put this into perspective. Um, one is, is interesting because it's not really a wildlife issue per se, but it pertains to trapping. And per Alaska state regulations, trappers do not have to label their traps. There are no setbacks from trails, parking lots, or roads. 
Um, they're not required to mark their traps with their name or even put a flag that trapping exists. And they're not required to check their traps. So a lot of states have requirements. They're not required for, to check them? They are not required to check their traps. So in many, and this is on state lands, there, there are other rules for, for example, the Kenai National Wildlife Refuge allows trapping, but it's it's stricter. They have to label their traps and they have to check their traps. And there's there are a couple of other regulations. But for state lands, which is which are vast, and and many of those state lands have agreements with national forests. So Chugach National Forest, for example, is practically managed by state wildlife rules. So yes, uh, you don't have to check your traps. Um, so you could set your trap out on the start day in November and come back at the end of March. Totally legal. Um, and the, the problem that we've been seeing, obviously, there are really troubling impacts for wildlife. Incidental take of moose being caught in leg hold traps and snares. Um, it, you know, species that you're not trying to catch, but that they do. Right. Um, and dogs. A lot of dogs are caught on these traps. Um, we put forward a proposal based on community outcry from our membership to have 50 yard setbacks from traps from trails because people would be going out skiing on these designated ski trails. And for example, one of our board members' dog was caught and killed in a, con a baited conibear trap 30 feet from the, um, the parking lot of the trailhead. Wow. Uh, this last year, behind the uh, um, elementary school in Homer, there's a trail system and four dogs were caught on trails leading out of that system. So we've put forward proposals asking for trap setbacks from these trails and the board of game has denied them. Um, what reason though? I mean, this is a, a detriment to um, the public as well. Correct. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's murky. Um, some of them say, well, this would be too hard to regulate, which I have a hard time believing because there are some setback regulations in Juneau. It's the only area of state lands where there are designated setbacks and those are a quarter mile from trails. So we asked so they're already doing it. Yeah. Yes. But they, but there's just the composition of the board right now. We had one board member of this round vote to support it, but all the others, um, all the others refused. Basically, the argument that I've heard the most is, well, this is a slippery slope. If trappers give an inch, you're going to take a mile. And this is the start to banning trapping in the state. And so it just really reflects if there were, if the board of game had a composition that was not so heavily catered towards the interests of Alaska Trappers Association, for example, uh, which it currently has two members of the seven members of the board are members of that organization. Oh, wow. Um, okay. <laughs> it, it's it's just a hard place to advocate for, for wildlife when the composition is so skewed. Um, we had 500 comments in support of our first proposal. There were multiple proposals that came up this last year with over 300 proposals or um, comments in support of those community groups in support. The Forest Service wrote a letter of support and yet many of those um, setbacks were rejected. Um, wow. Yeah. And and I think um, there's another example that is is actually, it's wearing heavy on my mind because 
it starts tomorrow. And at this last board of game meeting in March, um, the board announced a predator control program on wolves and bears in southwest Alaska on the Mulchatna caribou herd. So that's a lot of words. I'm not explaining what that means. But there's a, a law in Alaska called the Intensive Management Law that allows agencies when an intensive management program is authorized to do things like habitat intervention and predator control. Hmm. And predator control is state-sponsored aerial gunning or gassing of predators. So they can, it's, it's paid state employees shooting wolves and bears from helicopters, gassing wolf dens, bear dens. Things for like what, that. for what reason are they saying that, um, they are killing off too many caribou? Correct. It's for the purpose. Are there even enough bear and wolves to do this aerial gunning and gassing? Great. Yes. All good questions. Yes. So the purpose of predator control is to reduce the number of predators so that you can increase the number of ungulates, usually moose or caribou, mm -hmm. sometimes deer. Um, and, and this is, again, an example of how the system of management in Alaska is very much focused on a single species, mostly on game. How can we increase caribou and moose? Well, one way maybe is we can decrease wolves and bears and predators. And um, this has been a highly controversial program since its inception. Um, and to the extent that uh, former governor Tony Knowles um, issued a, a blue ribbon panel to assess whether predator control works, it has not been found in any peer-reviewed study to work, and yet it's something that we have in Alaska. And the really troubling issue about this upcoming predator control program is that um, the Mulchatna herd, much like many of the caribou herds in Alaska, is crashing. It used to be 80,000 animals, then the range kind of moved to 30,000 to 80,000. Currently, there's less than 12,000 caribou in the Mulchatna oh. herd. Yeah. And why is that, you think? Is it just habitat loss uh, or climate change or many other yeah. reasons, human encroachment? Yeah. Alaska Department of Fish and Game gave a presentation on their research and findings. Um, and there have been some joint publications with uh, Togiak National Wildlife Refuge. So there's state and federal research going on into the flaps of this herd. And there is currently a predator control program for wolves uh, concerning the Mulchatna herd. And last year, this would have been in 2022, um, Alaska Department of Fish and Game did a presentation to the Board of Game and said, our findings, I'm summarizing here, our findings are that wolves really have nothing to do with the herd collapse. It's habitat loss, mostly from climate change and disease. These animals are very, very sick. Um, there's a little bit of predation by bears on uh, calves in the in the calving grounds, but the three main threats are habitat, disease, and out-of-season harvest, particularly out-of-season human harvest, humans killing female caribous outside of the regulated season. Yeah. And the department recommended that the Board of Game revisit the wolf control program because they basically said 
it's wolves don't have anything to do with this collapse. And some research suggested that wolves are actually helpful for the herd because they can move them along. So the caribou don't eat themselves out of house and home. They can call diseased animals. There's an intrinsic relationship between wolves and caribou. Um, So that was their official recommendation. And at the last meeting, the board of game, to our great surprise, authorized a predator control program against the advisement of the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. And starting tomorrow um, until June, I believe, um, June 6th, so for 30 days. um, That's a lot of time. Yeah, the state is taking two fixed wings and a helicopter and aerially gunning every wolf and bear, black and brown bear, despite age, class, or sex. Um, So it's just, it's not even... Um, they're going after any, and it's, I mean, that is going to hurt the bear and the wolf population, because if you're taking down the alpha, yeah. how is that going to affect their reproduction? And the and, list goes and, on and on, right? I mean. Yeah, that's that's the difficult part. They anticipate that they'll take, they'll kill between 25 or 15 to 25 bears. They're not sure about wolves. And then they're taking the hides and heads and selling them at the horn auction in Anchorage. Um, but the salvage requirements are are really low. Um, and that's that's the problem. When we have a focus on game, there's a lot of research on caribou, a lot of research on moose. Those species absolutely deserve that kind of attention. But there is less on bears and wolves. Some surveys in the state for bears are over 30 years old and we don't have an accurate population estimate. So we don't really know. And, and it's just not as much a priority. Um, and, and for wolf management, it's really interesting because, um, there's been a movement particularly from Denali National Park through their wolf research to try and understand the impact of, of wolf family dynamics, right? Like trapping an alpha versus uh, a non-alpha and how that totally changes the the kind of neighborhood of wolf packs in an right. area. Right. And and at the state level, managers just don't look at those intricacies. They're looking at the wolf population overall. And so if we say, oh, but that'll hurt the wolves in this area, the response is more wolves will come down and repopulate it. It's not a big deal. They're, it's not it's not taking a more granular look. And in fairness, Alaska is a huge place. This is a really hard thing to do. Um, but there's not a lot of that conservation management principle of if you don't know, don't manage the absolute edge. Don't kill to the absolute edge. Leave right. a buffer right. for things like climate change. What if there's a really hard winter? And what if there's a disease outbreak? You know, there's just so many variables in these ecosystems. And you don't know these days, I mean, how fast things can change. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, especially for species like caribou. I mean, we're starting to see wildfires on the tundra on permafrost. Oh, my. It's wild. And and I think. Wow. I guess round round this, this out to what AWA's mission, what really inspires me in this work and in this work with Board of Game is that um, the system that we have for managing and interacting or managing wildlife in Alaska and in most Western systems is very anthro-focused. 
we're looking at and arguing about the allocation of moose for humans. How many, how many moose do we get to kill and who gets to have them? And those are important questions for subsistence. I'm not trying to take that away. But the problem is that there's no allocation for non-human species. We don't allocate a certain number of fish to marine mammals. We don't allocate moose to wolves or bears. We only allocate to humans. Right. And even the notion of humans allocating wildlife to certain users has this inherent notion of power over species, right? Like yeah, speciesism. We, we have the, the power to allocate that. Yeah. And so um, there's this really interesting model um, of indigenous land planning. It's called Land Peoples and Relationship Model. It comes out of uh, the Yukon First Nations. And uh, it's called the no voice perspective. And basically the premise of this, this model, and I'm sure there are, are others who can more eloquently explain this, but when we make decisions about wildlife and habitat, the idea is that there's a round table of decision makers and people who want certain things from that, that decision. But at the table, there's always an empty seat for the voiceless and the voiceless are future generations of humans. The seat is for non-humans. The seat is for, uh, you know, plants and habitat. Basically mm -hmm. they call it mother earth, but, uh, you know, having that empty seat there requires as the discussion moves forward, when there's, there is time dedicated for that empty seat for people to think about what would that voiceless want from this discussion. And that's, I think, what I see the role, the purpose of Alaska Wildlife Alliance is we want to make sure that there are people who are speaking for those voiceless creatures, speaking up for the wolves and the bears and the beavers and caribou in the context of the Mulchatna herd. I really want someone on the board of game who says, let me just speak for the wolves for a moment. And I mean, I know this sounds kind of. No, some it people doesn't. think it sounds like it be to be, but no, yeah. it's not but crazy. It's changing. It's just changing the paradigm from one of, of ownership and entitlement to one more in reciprocity and relationships, which has historical precedence with first nations people in Alaska. And we just need to, to integrate that. And so, yes. um, you know, in the Mulchatna context, having someone say, for someone from the wolves, they have nothing to do with this. This is, this is wasteful. Um, you know, for uh, the caribou saying we're sick and we don't have enough food. This is not the solution. We deserve something better. Can you intervene on, in something that will actually help us, you know? And so, and, and room for the indigenous communities who rely on caribou for subsistence and that herd has tanked. They're really suffering. And so um, expanding that paradigm, expanding the number of voices in the room to include wildlife is really what gets to my, the heart of why I'm here and what we do. Well, and it all started when you were at that meeting and you heard AWA speak up. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, there might not be a direct, they might not pass the proposal that you want, or you might not get that systemic change right away. But I think it's really important and, and a really timely, I mean, we're 
We're living in a world of so much information. We're seeing the impacts of climate change. And I think people are really starting to question, is the way that we've been doing business really working? Can we do this more holistically? Um, and, and so I think it's really important to have groups like this, voices like this in those systems that are mundane and honestly not very attractive. You know, it's, it's hard to talk to people like we go to a lot of meetings. Well, a lot of decisions are made in those meetings. And um, so it's, it's not maybe as alluring as field work all the time, but it is important. It's very important. And I, I think to your point about the indigenous peoples, their traditional ecological knowledge is so valuable. I mean, you know, they've been on these lands for so long. They understand it. They're one with nature. I mean, just being having their voice, being fair representation on the, you know, Alaska's board of game would be amazing. That is so disheartening to know that these seven members are appointed by one person where the people of Alaska have no voice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and I think, I mean, the number of people in Alaska who don't know the hunters or, and people who are engaged and really want to know, you know, about their food and the ecosystems, people who are, are really well-meaning, many have no idea the board of game even exists, to be honest. They think that the regulations come out in the booklet and that those regulations have been vetted against some higher standard. But wow. I mean, I've been at board of game meetings. We we're involved in litigation against the state and the board of game around a very liberalized wolf trapping season for Alexander Archipelago wolves in Southeast Alaska. And being in the room when they're making the decisions of how many, what's the population objective for Alexander Archipelago wolves in this area? And they'll say 200. I don't know. That seems kind of high. Some people say 250 is too many. Well, what's the minimum? Maybe a hundred. Okay. Let's just set it between 150 and 200. So random. It's very random. <laughs> and it's based on the values of the people who comment and engage and the people who make the decisions. And so if those values are ones that are inherently suspicious of wolves and their impact on their opportunity to hunt for deer, for example, we're likely to see lower population objectives. So there's no there's no scientific standard is what I'm no, saying. No, there isn't. For how what? these decisions are made. It's a political decision. And that's what I mean by when I say wildlife management is about people management. I, I keep rem being reminded of how important it is. Um, and, and not talking political as a Republicans or Democrats or anything like that, but just the, the interests of those who are involved. Right. They have agendas and right. you have to be a part of that. And we need to have a voice for wildlife. Well, thank you for being the voice for the wildlife and, and being that part of the fair representation for that empty chair, for that voiceless being. Trying to, yes. Thank Yeah. We, um, and we do a lot too with, you know, at this last board of game meeting, we partnered with, um, Chugach Regional Resources Commission, which is a, um, an inter or tribal consortium that works on, um, tribal subsistence rights and advocacy. And we did a training for tribal members as to what the board of game was. We worked through proposal booklets with them. And then those tribal members testified in front of the board of game. Wow. And so um, just trying to get 
more participation in that. And then also looking at systemic changes. What can we do to make the board of game inherently more fair, inherently more diverse and representative of all those interests, including non-human interests? Right. Do you ever, um, does AWA have a way of sharing the intrinsic value that these species have on the ecosystem and for everybody that's involved in the area? Yeah, intrinsic value is something that some people don't really understand. And sometimes I have a hard time understanding what we mean by intrinsic value. But um, Or like just how if the wildlife is is preserved, um, does it then fall into like you see the ecosystems thriving? Uh Just like, you know, I know that wolves will call um, you know, sick animals and, mm-hmm. you know, how it's all interconnected in that way, how they're actually supportive of the ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. We talk a lot about this as intact ecosystems when an ecosystem is intact and intact ecosystems are ones where the relationship between species and humans and those species plants and lands and waters are balanced. Um, And uh, those are the ones that are most often resilient to, uh, you know, temperature changes, again, like a hard winter. If that ecosystem is intact, usually species can uh, withstand that, those pressures, those threats. Um, But when an ecosystem is not intact when those balances are thrown off. There's a lot of cascading um, effects, and those are very, very hard to know ahead of time. Sometimes they're Mm. hard to see in real time. We're not really sure. (laughs) And so, and I, I think, you know, climate is a really big destabilizing force for many of our ecosystems in Alaska. And people often think, um, you know, Alaska is so big and, there are so few people. We have about 700,000 people in the state um, and half of them live in Anchorage. Everyone else is kind of dispersed over these small towns and villages. And so it feels like, okay, there's a lot of land. There's not a lot of people. We're good. We're just, we're going to be protected. And what we're finding is that we're really not. Um, I mean, climate impacts everything. We're seeing changes three to four times the rate of the lower 48. And Three to four times. Three to four times. Yeah. I mean, um, you mentioned that there was a wildfire in the permafrost. Many. Multiple. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's yes, insanity. I, it is. It is wild. There have been um, a couple years ago in Bethel, which is in southwestern Alaska, salmon were having heart attacks because the river was 11 degrees warmer than it had been the previous 11 year. 11 degrees. 11 degrees. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, the changes are are immense. And um, we developed a climate adaptation program because we kind of know how much carbon, let's say, will be released into the atmosphere. We kind of know what the temperature change will be. We kind of know what that means for sea level rise. What's really hard to know are the ecological cascades mm-hmm. within ecosystems that have now been thrown off kilter. And so... Um, 
through our climate adaptation planning program, we know that Alaskans, people are making adaptation plans. Villages are moving. Um, people are changing, uh, you know, season lengths are changing for wildlife hunting because the rut is happening later. You know, there's, there's all these changes happening and people are adapting. And the goal of that program is to make sure that as we make adaptation plans for humans, we absolutely have a responsibility to make adaptation plans for wildlife. And to do that, we need to know what's coming. And so yeah. um, we're, we're just in the beginning phases of a project with, uh, in partnership with the native village of Paiamute and their neighboring villages of Hooper Bay, Chewak, and Scammon Bay. Um, and uh, this project is funded through the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation Coastal Resiliency Program. And they're faced with very hard decisions, these villages, about what to do. Um, the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta is in southwest, pretty much western, but a little bit southwestern Alaska, and it's very flat. Um, it is one of the most important nesting sites for migratory birds in the world. Um, every, almost every emperor goose nests there. There are millions of birds that go up to those shores and, and nest on the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta every year. It's, it's incredibly important biologically. Um, and it's flooding. It's going to be salinated. That delta oh, could wow. actually, on a map, look smaller by 2050. I mean, the climate projections are very clear about that. Right. And villages, you know, there's 56 villages in that area or so. And so where are they going to move? What are they going to do? What are the birds going to do? What are the, um, Yeah, what is everyone going to do? What is everyone going to do? And so uh, we are doing that that planning um, because it's not just about, you know, there's also a really strong spiritual and cultural connection to wildlife and traditional practices. And so, right. you know, some communities are saying, like, should we bring in pigs? And and is that going to be our food security? Well, what are what about nature based allies? What how can how can wildlife be a part of the solution? And how can we carve out space and regulations that protect wildlife and help wildlife adapt in all of these changes? An example that's been thrown around has been, there's not very much ice that's going to be left. We know that ice in important walrus migrations is declining. It's already declining and those walrus populations are getting really close together. Could we create artificial walrus haulouts? Literally built rafts of possibly old oil and gas platforms in the middle of those migration routes so that walrus have a place to rest. I mean, like, these are the kinds of things that we're thinking about because the changes are happening and we feel that we have a deep sense of responsibility to help wildlife adapt in all of those changes. And so, um, you know, a big thank you part for of that. that. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a big, it, you know, with a lot of power comes a lot of responsibilities. And again, humans have so much power in in what we do and the changes that we're making to the world. And, right. and I just think we have a huge responsibility to make sure that we are we are helping plan for the most um, under-resourced people and wildlife. And like you said, with responsibility with great response, with great power comes this great responsibility. And 
what I feel is we're not taking that responsibility seriously. And, but thank you and AWA for taking that step and looking forward and trying to plan and navigate how you can support the wildlife that um, are already suffering. They're already feeling the effects. I mean, I, I was reading on AWA, um, one of the blogs was about the cook and lit beluga whales, how they have, it's a very special population, but their population is crashing. Yeah. Yes. And uh, yeah, gosh, the, the beluga whales, the plight of the cook and lit beluga whales, one that's very close to my heart. Um, and I just want to make sure I have all their, their numbers correct, but um there are five stocks of beluga whales in Alaska, five distinct populations. Um, and one of them is the Cook Inlet beluga whale. Um, Cook Inlet is massive. It's bigger than Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> um, and it wow. borders, it's the most heavily populated uh, watershed in Alaska. It's right outside of Anchorage, um, all the way down to the Kenai Peninsula. Wow. And um, yeah, there were... Um, so in the 1970s, there were as many as 1,300 beluga whales, cooking the beluga whales. Um, and there's uh, actually the native village of Tyonic is kind of the beluga tribe. I mean, it was a huge subsistence cultural symbol um, and resource for those people. Um, and so we went from 1,300 cooking the belugas in the 1970s, and now there are less than 300. There's just been a sharp decline. Um, why and, is that? Uh, great question. We, well, in, in the 2008 to 2010, AWA was on the coalition to get this species listed as an endangered species. And that petition was successful. So they're, they're an uh, endangered species. And with that comes designations of critical habitat, supposedly comes with more protections. Um, but the, the, con the population continues to decline by about 2.3% each year. So um, COVID stalled some of the latest survey um, population surveys, but we're probably around 260 to 270 whales left. Um, and when they released the status assessment, this is NOAA, um, last September, they said that because the population is so small and because they're not really sure why the population is decreasing, it doesn't look like recovery is going to happen anytime soon. And the the sense that we've been getting from managers from cooking that blue I hear all the time is it's death by a thousand cuts. And I think that that's, that's pretty true for a lot of species decline. We're seeing salmon starting to collapse, yeah. um, caribou. It's not often just one silver bullet, but uh, if we just got rid of trawling if we just got rid of this one fishing group we just did this everything would be fine i think it's going to take addressing a lot of different things to to make that recovery possible but um we're very concerned about cooking the belugas and so we um have done a lot of partnership work to do three kind of main programs around cooking the beluga recovery so the first is that we are one of the co-founding groups in the alaska beluga monitoring partnership now called the Alaska Blue Monitoring Program under NOAA. And we have trained volunteers who are monitoring for these beluga whales at the mouths of prominent rivers um, where they're coming in to feed. And so 
Um, we have dozens of volunteers who are out there in rain and snow and wind, um, counting those belugas, documenting foraging behavior, documenting human disturbance and noise. Um, and all those data uh, are sent to NOAA, they're reviewed and are um, culminate in these reports that NOAA can then use for things like development projects, bank stabilizations at the mouth of a river that belugas use in the spring. We can know kind of what times those belugas are coming in. Um, we also have a text alert system for the Kenai and Kasilof rivers. Um, so when our volunteers see a beluga, we text uh, people where they can see them. And we now have over 400 people on that text alert system. Wow. And people wow. who never knew that these endangered belugas were in their backyards are now racing over to the bridge to watch them in the river. It's really amazing. Um, so just building that awareness and building this uh, wow. knowledge. Um, and then we have worked with partners also on some more direct advocacy interventions and the priorities that we've identified for beluga whales. Yes, it's death by a thousand cuts, but some cuts we think run a little bit deeper. And those two cuts are pollution, contamination, the environment is not very healthy. By extraction it's, industries? It's, it's by, it's also a tricky thing to know. So there's, oh. um, there is oil and gas development. There has been many uh, oil and gas leaks into Cook Inlet in the past years that have gone on for months. So that's one contributing Man. factor. There's sewage um, treatment and sewage dumping. Oh, and then no. there are things. So Cook Inlet is exempt from EPA water quality standards in these processes called mixing zones. So mixing zones is a permitted uh, a permitted area where the pollution can exceed EPA standards. Why is that? There are many, well, what is it? Delusion. Delusion is the solution to pollution. Oh. Um, they basically say that Cook Inlet is turbid enough that it will wash out pollution eventually. Um, we engaged in a process to map all of the threats to beluga whales. And these included shipping routes where boats are going because they they echo i mean sound is really important to blue right. hunting oil and gas operations urban and stormwater runoff systems you know car tires and things like that um and then these mixing zones of pollution discharge where companies or sewage treatments have these special exemptions and mixing zones which often overlap um zones where industrial operators have permits um to disturb belugas. There are some of those for oil and gas. Um, and we created this map to just overlay, you know, where are belugas supposed to go where, where they're not being impacted by these threats? And there's really not many places in Cook Inlet. Um, and so when we were looking about what to do with this, we found that everything was quite siloed. There was some research on water quality here and there and different regulators. Mm -hmm. And it was just very confusing. So without integrated information, right, really hard to understand and therefore really hard to know where can we intervene to make water quality better for Cook Inlet. And that's ultimately our goal. Um, and so this fall, we're having a comprehensive water quality summit for Cook Inlet um, hosted by our partners um, to get everyone in the same room and say, okay, what is going on with pollution from this industry? What is the mixing zone status? Just what's the status? What is the health of Cook Inlet? And what can we do to make it better? 
Um, so we're very excited about that. Um, and, and it does relate to this, but our, our second really big advocacy action is prey availability. And there's been research to suggest that if belugas have enough to eat, they might be strong enough to withstand all those other threats. They might be strong enough to withstand the contamination and the noise disturbance and the harassment, all of that. And so we've been working with, um, with a, a fisheries specialist to who was who was on the initial recovery team to figure out um, what fish species are most important to belugas when to increase their recovery. And so we've submitted a proposal to the Board of Fish to um, basically reduce the commercial harvest of hooligan in the springtime so that again we can get more for belugas because there is no allocation of hooligan for belugas. Of course you can try and reduce the human allocation and let that trickle down into, you know, more eagles. food for them, more food for them. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there, there are some habitat, um, some habitat programs we're doing also um, concerning beavers. And I think this is an example of how everything is interconnected. Right. Um, and on the Southern Kenai Peninsula on one side of Cook Inlet, um, beavers have been trapped to 20% of their historic population. Basically 80% of the beavers are gone. Um, there are places like beaver flats that no longer have beavers. Um, they've been expertly extirpated oh. from entire river systems. And the area is seeing dramatic changes. There are peatlands that are drying. And as those peatlands dry, they are no longer a fire break. Now we're seeing lightning caused wildfires on the Kenai Peninsula. We did not see that before. So now there's fires and those moist sponges of peatlands aren't there to, right, to break to absorb, that up. But yeah. Right. Peatlands are incredible for carbon capture. They have a ton of carbon in them that stays out of our atmosphere. Right. Um, they're really important. Moose habitat, berry habitat, and really important for baby fish. <laughs> we don't really realize how many spawning streams and, and fish really do need land that is wet and cool. And so um, we are undergoing a, a demonstration project in partnership with the Ketchumac Bay um, National Estuarine Research Reserve, University of Alaska and University of Southern Florida, funded by the Wildlife Conservation Society. Well, we're really excited about it because there is a board of game proposal, for example, this year that said, let's just put a five-year moratorium on beaver trapping. We don't want any beaver trapping for five years because they need a chance to come back. And we mobilized a ton of people and agencies to say beavers are important for fish, they're important for moose, they're important for river health, they're important for water temperature, cooling, because these rivers yes. are getting very warm and they create pool ponds where fish can find refuge. And uh, the proposal failed. And one of the board of game members said, I'm on the board of game, I'm not on the board of fish. And I think it just represents their reasoning for not passing it was because we think of fish as one thing and game as another. Like and you said, it's just everything siloed. Very siloed. But and what's un what's unfortunate is is that we're not looking at the bigger perspective here is they are actually supporting these peatlands, the beavers, and wow. they're supporting us by helping to stave off the climate change that's already happening. Absolutely. We're yeah. not doing anything to support them. 
Yeah. And, and so I think that it was, it was a very, yeah, you, you nailed it. And um, so our project with these organizations is to do demonstration projects that actually quantify, we have beaver dams and beaver dam analogs, basically fake beaver dams. But with these, with this, you know, beavers, how, what is their rate of recharge for drying peatlands? What is the impact of stream temperature when there are beavers there? Um, uh, and, and what happens around these beaver ponds that happens against the control, which has no beaver pond and we're seeing that drying. And, uh, there has been a lot of research on beaver impacts on peatlands and we expect that the results will be beneficial. Beavers are a keystone species in this area and, and therefore are very ecologically important. But even more important, arguably, than quantifying that impact is bringing people to those demonstration sites and saying, see, look at this. Look, I know you say you don't care about fish, but you should because you should care about moose and there's a moose, you know? Yeah. Um, like really trying to pull people into that holistic management and having more beavers would mean having more fish, which means could mean more support for belugas. I mean, it's all just so interconnected. And so right. when we, when we're looking at prey availability for belugas, we're looking at commercial fishing regulations. We're looking at the contaminants that are also impacting fish. And we're looking at, you know, what can we do on the habitat and to support fish at a time when the rivers are warming. And there's a lot of complicated stuff that happens in the ocean that we can't protect them from, but what can we do here to help them through our fishing regulations and through our habitat? So, um, well, I appreciate yeah. you having that foresight to at least try to have some kind of game plan for what you can do in the area. Like you said, you can't control what's happening in the ocean, but you can support what's happening locally in that inlet. Yeah. And, and I think there are so many issues that we face. I mean, it's so overwhelming for people who, who are concerned about climate change, who are concerned about wildlife, because it feels like there's so many things coming at you and it kind of is that death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. But I think it's just trying to strategize around what cuts run deeper, what, where can we use wildlife as an ally? I mean, beavers, yeah. you just let them go and they'll do their thing. It's great. We don't, we don't have to manually dig and, you know, right. They can, right. Be, they can be a partner in this. Right. And yeah. um, so I think just, just bringing us back to a place where we're thinking holistically is really the solution. And, and the solution to the problem needs to meet this, the solution, the scale of the solution needs to meet the scale of the problem. So, yeah, you know, doing a couple small things individually always helps, but we really do need this systemic change because the problem is so big. Right. Right. I like what you mentioned about where are the deeper cuts going, because that's where you need to focus. Of course, it's like you feel like you're being hammered every which way because there is so much information coming in on what's really happening. But like you said, you really have to focus on what we can do to support now for okay. the future. Um, yeah. And the other part of what AWA does, which is so fantastic is that you are able to get the public to participate mm -hmm. um which is tremendous to get people motivated and inspired to help create change like you had 400 
volunteers help with the uh, beluga whales? I think, is that what you mentioned? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the program is just growing and growing. We have, yeah, we have 400, over 400 people in the text alert system. Um, I don't know off the top of my head how many volunteers we have in Kenai and Kisilaf, but it, it's, it's, I mean, it's huge. And for people yeah. to give those monitoring sessions are two hours and you're, it is not often sunny and beautiful and you don't always see whales. I mean, gosh, we have one volunteer who's also a board member who just dutifully watches the Kisilaf river. And we've only seen belugas in that river three times and wow. for years she's out there and having knowing that belugas aren't there is really important. Why aren't they there? Can we do something to get them more food? You know, there's all these questions that come from that data and, and we wouldn't know that without right. her individual right. action doing that. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm just always so humbled by the passion and dedication of our volunteers. I really, there's a, a well, special place for them. <laughs> yeah. And they're very necessary. They're an important aspect they're integral to your work how do you how do you engage with the public to get them to participate well you know covid changed the game a little bit <laughs> it was harder for in-person um interaction but we we have an email listserv that goes out with opportunities we call them action alerts and those are for Alaskans and people who live outside of the state. There are many wildlife issues that happen on federal lands, and therefore anyone, any U.S. citizen can comment, and their comment has equal weight. So um, there's, and, and, you know, tourism is such a strong driving force in Alaska. Even just having state agencies and decision makers know that people from outside Alaska are looking at this and care about our wildlife is important. So if you don't live in Alaska, don't feel like you don't have a place here. You absolutely do. Um, voice is very important. And so, um, yeah, our, our social media, our email is serve and our website serve as our platform to really get things out. Um, we love talking with people like you who can share the message about, you know, what's going on and how to get engaged. Um, it's a lot of word of mouth. And, uh, you know, we also have Wildlife Wednesday events where we bring in speakers to talk about different species and engage with people then. So it's kind of a myriad of personal connections and digital outreach. Well, you do a fantastic job because I know that I was signing off for, um, I believe it was, maybe it was for the wildlife in Kenai. Oh, great. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I thought that what your outreach is is wonderful. Um, I know that we have gone over a little bit, but I would like to just ask you if you, on a high note, can share with listeners about the two big wins for the Kenai brown bear. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thanks to people like you commenting. So this is really great. Um, yes, yeah, so... So Kenai brown bear is up for those who are visual. We're in South Central Alaska. It kind of looks like the sun on that. We're sort of right in the middle here. Um, and uh, this is actually the brown bear population that originally brought me to AWA. So uh, these bears are are um, have some level of genetic distinction because they're somewhat geographically isolated. And um, the Kenai Refuge is about a third of the land mass on the Kenai Peninsula. And That's there has been, yeah, it's a huge refuge, huge refuge. And um, 
the refuge does allow some hunting and trapping, um, but has never allowed brown bear baiting. And uh, the former chair of the Board of Game, who was the chair for many, many years, lives in that area and was one of the driving voices in this local effort to reduce the brown bear population. There were about 650 bears, brown bears. They wanted more like 200 to 300 just because they didn't, you know, concerns over public safety or, or, you know, things like that. Um, and so, uh, but the, the science from both the state and the federal agencies said, you can't lower the population that, that much. It's, it won't be able to sustain it. So um, through the Board of Game process, there were many proposals by the public and requests from the Board of Game asking that the Kenai Refuge open itself to brown bear baiting because the surrounding state lands had. The surrounding state lands have bear baiting every year. They've expanded the hunting seasons. They've dropped salvage requirements for brown bears. Basically, anything that they can do through state regulations to make it as easy as possible to kill a brown bear. That was kind of the, the movement in, in 2013, 2015. So in 2016, the refuge said, you know, we're just gonna make this official. We're passing a rule that says we're not allowing brown bear baiting in the refuge. And that's, that's our stance. And we were very supportive of that rule. We mobilized comments in support of the rule. The rule passed and the state of Alaska and Safari Club sued the refuge and said, you don't have the legal authority to do that. We intervened on behalf of the Fish and Wildlife Service and said, yes, they do. <laughs> and thus sprung this multi-year legal uh, fight, basically, that um, went through multiple courts. We won at every level. Um, and just this last spring, the state and Safari Club tried to appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, the highest court in the land. And um, we were nervous about that. And um, yeah. just because you never want, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it was just such a long battle. And, um, and this spring, the Supreme Court decided that they would not take up the case that the, the lower court decision holds, which was in our favor, basically saying that Fish and Wildlife Service had the authority to not have brown bear baiting on the Kenai Refuge. So we officially protected that right of the refuge, essentially, um, which was a big one. It took a very long time. Huge. We were represented. We were um, a coalition of groups as intervening plaintiffs. We were represented by an amazing pro bono law firm in Alaska called Trustees for Alaska, who do a ton of pro wow. bono litigation for wildlife. We are immensely grateful to them. Highly recommend them. Um, and our coalition partners were great. So so that was one of the wins. And um, so while all of that was working through the courts, um, we had a very big administration change on the federal level. And the Trump administration and the, the heads of the agencies that were appointed put down a rule that said it was a Fish and Wildlife Service rule that opened the proposed to open the refuge to brown bear baiting and proposed to take away all of the extra trapping restrictions that the refuge has which is that you have to label your traps you can't have visual bait on your traps you have to check your traps 
Um, you can't shoot within a quarter mile of the river. There are certain zones where you can't hunt um, and you can't trap within a mile of roads or trailheads. And so it was kind of like a, a proposal that was sort of eating Fish and Wildlife Service out from the inside. So then we were in a position to oppose that rule. And so we um, asked for comments and people like you commented. We had hundreds of thousands of comments against that rule. Um, I mean, it was overwhelming. 99.9% .9 of the comments received in the Federal Register were against that rule. Basically, people were saying the refuge is a refuge. We should keep it as a refuge for wildlife. And also, just a couple of months ago, we found out that that rule was vacated, meaning that they dropped it. So all that to say years and years of work and time and money and effort to kind of keep the status quo yeah. <laughs> for yeah. bears. And so in some ways that feels a little tough. We want to be more proactive and, and find ways to improve coexistence, improve Kenai brown bear populations. But um, I think it is a good example in, you know, without watchdogs, without people just tire tirelessly fighting, there's always going to be these efforts to um, degrade protections for wildlife. Um, and right. ecosystems. And so even though it's a lot of time, um, and I know people are exhausted with all the things that they're trying to comment on, it really makes a huge difference. I mean, this is millions of acres that is kept as a refuge for these brown bears that otherwise on the peninsula don't have a place. And so um, we're just so grateful to all the people who commented to our legal representation, to our partners. It was it was a big effort. And uh, we were honored to be the late lead plaintiff and that um because it was something that was really important to us yes right I would be honored as well if I had if I was the plaintiff so thank you for that work because that was not easy and it's a um you it, there's exhaustion from the fight at times and it was confusing because on the one hand we were telling people to support a refuge rule and then on the other we were trying to oppose a refuge it was very yeah, confusing yeah and we saw a lot of those during that that era where there were, you know, we saw it with Pebble Mine, the federal administration was against Pebble Mine, Trump administration became for it and then against it. And it was just, I think people were playing ping pong a little bit. Right, right. And it's Not easily sure. to get, it's easily to get confused as to where you're supposed to stand. Yeah. Yeah. What's happening. Here. But you guided the way and, you know, thank goodness. And that there are some pro bono um, attorneys out there fighting the good fight. Oh, they're great. Trustees for wildlife. wildlife. That's amazing. That's amazing. I know your work is cut out for you, but thank you for all that you do. I mean, it's, it's not, I, you know, I don't envy you. I mean, I, I, I want to be a voice for the wildlife too. Um, but the work that you do, I mean, you're, you're the boots on the ground being that spokesperson for that empty chair. And so, I mean, from my heart, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, last, where can people learn about AWA so that they can um, follow you and learn more about AD AWA's work? Thank you. Um, our website is akwildlife.org. That's a really good spot to learn about some of our updates. We have... Um, blog posts and news. Um, you can learn more about our programs. So that's a really nice centralized hub for that. 
Um, also on the website, you can join our newsletter. We promise not to inundate you with emails, only the important ones. Um, and then uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram. You just search Alaska Wildlife Lines, you'll find us. Um, if you are in Alaska or visiting Alaska, please just give us a call. We love meeting with people, just grabbing a coffee, going out for a walk, um, learning more about, about your interests. And um, if you're outside of Alaska and, um, you know, we really want to know why, why you care about these wildlife species and it helps us, it helps um, in our efforts to communicate to decision makers why local decisions have a broader impact. And so um, please reach out. My email is Nicole, which is N-I-C-O-L-E at akwildlife.org. And I'm happy to chat with anyone. So um, yeah, you can find us on all our virtual platforms or come say hello. We would love that. Oh, you're incredible, Nicole. Thank you. And thank you so much for doing this podcast. I, I've learned so much from all the previous speakers and I, I feel really lucky to be here and to the listeners who care about this. There's a lot of things in the world to care about. And I, I, um, yeah, I, I just think that there need to be people in the world speaking for that. Yeah. Like I said, that empty chair and it's, it's always nice to know that there's solidarity because sometimes these things can feel so overwhelming. So, oh, for sure. Appreciate your whole network. Yeah, exactly. The solidarity is what helps to keep you Mm -hmm. going too, knowing that other people are wanting the same rights for the voiceless too. Yeah. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you.